Welcome to FIA's Market Voice podcast. In this episode, we're going to talk about some recent research on the derivatives clearing industry published by Coalition Greenwich, a consulting and market intelligence firm that works with many firms in the capital market sector. I have a particular interest in this research. At FIA, I oversee our data and research functions, and I worked very closely with Coalition Greenwich on this research. What makes it really special, at least in my mind, is that they've developed a set of questions on industry trends, and they went out to the industry and they asked for feedback from market participants. Roughly 180 people responded, and I think the data that they gathered reveals some very interesting insights on current trends in our industry. With me here today to talk about this research is the author of the report, Stephen Brewell. Stephen joined Coalition Greenwich to head up the derivatives and FX practice within the market structure and technology team. He brings over 25 years of experience in the financial services industry to this role. Prior to joining Greenwich, he was a vice president and head of derivatives product management at Brown Brothers Harriman. He was responsible for defining the company's derivative strategy, which included product development and prioritization of capital and technology investments. Stephen, welcome to our podcast. Thank you, pleasure to be here. So last week, by chance, you and I were both in Florida for the FIA's annual conference in Boca Raton. And one of the big takeaways that I think all of us got was the large number of companies active in the crypto space. They showed up as sponsors, as attendees, and even hosted some of the late night parties. I'm referring to companies like Coinbase, FTX, Cumberland, Jump Crypto, B2C2, and several more. So it's very obvious that people in that industry are keen to bring in institutional investors, broker dealers, and all the rest of what they call the TradFi industry. So your research obviously was done well before the conference, but it did include a question about crypto and specifically the degree to which people are active or about to be active or interested in being active in the trading of crypto futures. What were the findings? Yeah, so you're absolutely right. Crypto is certainly one of the primary themes of the conference and was also, as you suggested, part of the research that we conducted. So when we look at the responses, I think it's fair to say that the broker community is farther along than some of the other communities. So, for example, about two thirds of the brokers were either in the market currently or had definitive plans to enter that market. And on the flip side, only about 10% of the broker community thought that crypto was in general irrelevant to their business. So that means 90% had a focus on this and were trying to understand and build their strategies for the future. But we also looked at the buy side. And by buy side, we're talking about asset managers, hedge funds, those types of organizations, maybe more than retail or prop trading. So think about asset managers and hedge funds. They were a little bit different at this stage in the uh, digital asset life cycle. Only about 15% were either in the market or had plans to enter the market. Um, and as a matter of fact, though, a lot didn't really hold a view at all yet. However, those that did had more of a positive view than negative view, with about 20% saying they held a positive view of the asset and 17% a negative view on the asset. So again, the, the takeaway there is that I think the, the sell side understands that ultimately this is an asset that's going to start to attract more attention. And in this case, 
as the service providers, it's probably better to be ahead of your client base than behind them. So they're building the infrastructure, building the product base so that once the asset managers are ready, they can just immediately onboard into the ecosystem. Got it. Um, so I want to drill down a bit more on this topic of crypto. One of the um, crypto companies at the FIA Boca conference uh, called FTX has made a very innovative proposal uh, for a different model uh, for how clearing is done uh, for derivatives. Uh, FTX, as many people probably already know, uh, made a move last year, I think it was in August, to buy an existing uh, company here in the US called LedgerX, which had a futures license and a license to run a clearinghouse. And FTX is now asking the CFTC to allow them to change the clearing model to something that uh, is, I would guess I'd describe it as direct clearing. If I understand it correctly, the clients would connect directly to the clearinghouse, and that's very different from the existing model that we see in the futures industry here in the US and outside, in which clients rely on clearing firms, mostly banks, but not entirely. They rely on their clearing firms to process their trades and post their collateral. Your research has some interesting insights on the relationships between clients and clearing firms. And specifically, what are the key metrics, according to the people who responded to your research, what are the key metrics for de determining the quality of those relationships? Yeah, so it was interesting to look at that relationship and think about how it's evolved and how it will evolve going forward. So really, when you talk to the asset manager community or the buy side community, there are four main ways they measure the relationships with their counterparties. Number one, perhaps not a surprise, fees. And second, we saw counterparty credit worthiness, um, then quality of execution. And fourth, and this was a theme that I think sort of permeated both the conference as well as um, you know, the discussion today, access to new markets and products. And that is how will the brokers again enable as the asset management trading strategies evolve and grow geographically product wise, are there brokers able to support that growth? So along those lines, we also wanted to, un so those were the four top factors. Then we also, well, how does that manifest itself in the panel of clearing brokers that you use? And so we, we asked that question of the buy side and 11% only retained one clearing broker relationship. Everyone else had two or more. Um, and I think what we're seeing is that you need a little bit of diversity of provider um, in order to, again, effectively execute all your strategies. Now, two thirds of the buy side had four or fewer clearing brokers. On the other side, 17% actually maintained seven or more clearing broker relationships. And again, that talks to maybe a more complicated uh, trading strategy or portfolio management strategy. And so, what we're seeing there then is again a, a way for the buy side to access these markets requires some diversity of of provider but they also want to make sure that they don't spread their trades out to too many counterparties because there are some efficiencies whether operational efficiencies or margin efficiency with consolidating the number of clearing brokers the other big theme at the conference was the crisis in the nickel futures market operated by the London Metal Exchange. Um, that happened actually one week before the conference and lots of people were talking about it. Although even while we we're down there, it wasn't clear exactly you know, what was happening. Um, and it was still ongoing each day. 
So one dimension of that crisis was the risk of a default by one or more members of the LME's clearinghouse. Fortunately, it didn't happen. But it, the whole episode raised a lot of questions about the relationships between clearinghouses and their members. And when I say members, I'm talking again about those intermediaries that sit between the clients and the clearinghouses. Yeah. So obviously, that crisis at LME had not happened when you conducted your research. But if we step back from the details of what happened at LME, what insights can you share on the key factors in the relationships between clearing firms and clearing houses? And so again, one of the thing, one of the topics we undertook was to understand the scope of relationship between a member and their CCPs. And about half of, of the respondents uh, were members of nine or more CCPs. And again, this talks to the global reach required uh, in, in the clearing industry. And again, the ability to help your buy side clients access all these different markets and products, which again, it was definitely a theme that we saw throughout the um, throughout the survey and as well as throughout the conference. Um, so once we move beyond that, we also wanted to understand similarly, how do the clearers measure the quality of the clearing houses? And again, what came in first was operational efficiency. Um, and then basically there's a tie for second between capital efficiency through netting and optimization. And this is, I think what you were touching on, Will, potential exposure to loss. And so really those are the top three areas. And we know this is a capital intensive business and capital can be a very valuable resource. So we understand why risk and capital, um, the focus on risk and capital is warranted. You know, the operational efficiency is interesting as well, just because we do also see a lot of activity in that space. But also I wanted to make another quick comment here, which is the future, the potential for growth we talked about growth in different asset classes such as digital, but also when we talked about talked about that geographically, uh, Asia was cited as the highest area for potential growth going forward. So we'll see if that pans out or not. A lot of changes happened uh, in the past couple of weeks, but interestingly, Asia is seen as an area for potential growth. And that was actually a theme of some of the panels at the conference as well, the role of Asia in the futures markets going forward. <clears throat> I want to turn now to a more technical issue that affects nearly everyone in the clearing business. So there's a paradox at the heart of the business. When volatility goes up, which is exactly what we're seeing right now, when volatility goes up, the need to hedge uh, price risk also goes up, and that increases the flow of transactions through the exchanges and the clearing houses. And that's generally good news for all the people involved in managing that flow or introducing customers to these markets. But the capacity is not infinite, and there are times, as we've seen over the last several years, there are times when we get too much of a good thing. Part of the problem is that certain parts of the infrastructure that to transport these orders from the execution desk all the way down the chain through the broker and to the exchange and up to the clearinghouse, certain parts of the infrastructure are very old. I'm told that some of the applications in the clearing process are actually several decades old. So your research did ask some interesting questions about um, the sort of the operational side of the business. What did your research show about the perceived need for modernization and innovation? Where in that chain, that kind of yeah. trading and clearing workflow, where was the greatest need for modernization? 
Yeah, so I mean, that absolutely was an important theme. And again, it's interesting when you ask, you know, where are your investment dollars being allocated? Because then, you know, that's real projects at banks, you know, being managed uh, in order to improve their overall uh, product set. And so we, we talked a little bit before, operational efficiency is one way a clearer measures the CCP. And again, when we think about um, this is a risk management business and operational risk really needs to be a part of that discussion. There are many forms of risk in this business. Operational risk is certainly one of them. And so that's why we see workflow as such an important issue. But workflow is a pretty, pretty broad term. So we want to get a, we want to drill down a little bit and understand how people define workflow and where the focus is. So the number one focus are back office functions such as trade reporting and clearing. Those are most commonly cited. Then right behind that, we saw middle office functions, which might be give ups and allocations. And so you're absolutely right. Like the rise in volumes and the operational bottlenecks that were exposed creates this focus on these perhaps less perhaps more mundane functions but the importance of trade reporting the importance of give ups and getting these getting these items correct is absolutely vital again you don't want to embed more operational risk in a process that already contains a lot of counterparty risk and market risk etc and beyond that We've talked again a lot about product expansion and global expansion of the client base. It's very difficult to grow your business more you know, for new products, new geographies, if in fact you have an inefficient process to begin with. So it's not simply a rise in existing volumes today, it's the ability to grow your business in the future and gain more economies of scale to accommodate as your clients change and expand their trading strategies. You know, I, I'm going to just sort of uh, riff on that a bit because um... You know, the exchanges face the same issue. They're, they're, they're need, they need, and they are constantly doing this, they have to scale up for a pretty massive increase, not only in uh, the orders that are that are pumped through the exchange, uh, or so not only the trades, but also the orders, because for every trade that gets executed, there's actually maybe dozens, if not hundreds, of order messages flashing back and forth at, at unbelievable speeds. So we've seen a number of the top exchanges forming partnerships with cloud providers like mm. Amazon Web Services uh, and Google Cloud, because they see in cloud a way to uh, not only save money, because you get away from trying to maintain your own data center, but also the ability to scale up in response to demand. So I want to now turn the focus to what the clearing firms are doing, kind of that, that segment of the, yeah. of the research you did. What about clearing firms? What, where, what did they say in, in kind of their response to your research about where they're investing their dollars uh, in, in the area of technology and operations? Yes, yeah, so, I mean, I think you're right. I mean, you mentioned this before. There's a lot of old infrastructure out there, and we're at the point now where we need that modernization to happen. And so it is starting to happen. We're starting to see investment dollars being allocated toward these types of pro toward these new technologies. <clears throat> Because there are a lot of opportunities in this space to push some of these processes onto technology that lives in the cloud in a way that makes not only your own internal workflow more efficient, but again, the positive impact to the client base. Because one of the things we saw is that improvement in client service is an area of investment for um, the clearing brokers, and that covers a wide swath of territory. How do your clients interact with your data, with your analytics and your reporting? 
Um, and right now, it's all about APIs that, for example, allow clients to take transaction status data and bring it into their own workflow tools on an on-demand basis. And if you can have the enabling technologies to provide more immediate access to critical transaction data, critical pricing data, critical risk data, you're improving your client experience with you as a provider. And that's why that is such a top area of focus uh, for the clearing brokers. And again, but this is a twofold story as you suggested. One is about, again, getting your own house in order. And the other is, again, improving the client experience while at the same time thinking about the costs. Technology was cited as the second largest contributor to the cost of clearing behind capital, which we already discussed earlier. So how firms think about optimizing their tech stack from both a cost and a functional perspective is of paramount importance in the cloud across parts of that life cycle provide many opportunities to benefit both the clearing broker themselves as well as, well as the clearing broker's clients. So uh, we're almost out of time, but I wanna ask one more question and it relates mm -hmm. to another macro trend that is affecting this entire sector. And that is the uh, increased interest in, uh, uh, I would say I'll call it the commodity sector in general. And that was already happening last year, but it's only accelerated now with the sanctions on Russia and the disruption to uh, the supply of energy and metals from Russia. So just focusing for a bit on on commodities, one of the really big macro trends is this is this, um, this race to net zero. It's going to take decades to accomplish, but there's tremendous pressure on companies right now to decarbonize. And this is right across the whole global economy. And that connects to the clearing industry and derivatives markets more generally through these cap and trade mechanisms that, that create emission allowances that set a price on carbon and more recently the introduction of voluntary carbon offsets. So what did your research show about the appetite in the population that kind of responded to your research? What did that research show about the appetite for carbon futures specifically? Interestingly, it was a similar response to the digital asset sense when you're looking at both how the sell side and the buy side are responding. So, for example, the research indicated that the sell side is farther along in their carbon strategies than the buy side. So about half the sell side are, are either already in these markets or have, again, concrete plans to enter them. Compare that to the buy side where that number is at about 22%. So again, about 50% on the sell side, about 22% on the buy side. But we see about a third of the buy side are very interested in the market and they're watching it closely. And that augurs well for the future of the market as you start to think about, again, new investment strategies, new asset classes, new pressure from the end client, the, the asset owners themselves, the pensions and the endowments and how and what their priorities are going to be going forward from an investment management perspective. Um, and so while today the buy side says there isn't um, huge demand from end clients according to our survey, but again, regulatory pressure, stakeholder pressure on net zero and other such sustainability trends, as that increases as we expect it to, the number on the buy side is gonna grow, is gonna grow more and more. So again, we see the carbon futures growing and the sell side is positioning them positioning themselves to help their clients take advantage of this new new asset class. This is a new asset class. And we spoke earlier about the buy side's needs for brokers to support new markets. And to me, this is another example of the sell side looking out into the future, 
understanding you know where the carbon markets are headed, understanding where their asset managers are going to head, and building a way to support this new market and this new asset class. Well, look, Stephen, I really appreciate you taking the time to um, talk about these trends. I'd like to uh, encourage all the people listening to check out this report that Coalition Greenwich has published. It's called Derivatives Market Structure 2022, Identifying Opportunities for Growth. Uh, and feel free to contact us here at FIA. Uh, if you're having trouble finding that report, we'd be happy to connect you to the authors. Again, Stephen, thank you so much for joining the Market Voice podcast. Uh, thank you, Will. It was a pleasure. This podcast is intended for informational purposes only and is not intended to provide investment, tax, business, legal, or professional advice to any individual or entity. Unless specifically stated otherwise, neither FIA nor its members endorse, approve, recommend, or certify any information, opinion, product, process, service, individual, or entity presented or mentioned in this podcast. FIA makes no representations, warranties, or guarantees as to the accuracy or completeness of any of the podcast content. Reliance on the podcast contents is done at your own risk. FIA disclaims any and all liability or responsibility for any direct, indirect, incidental, special of consequential damages arising out of any use of, reference to, reliance on, or inability to use this podcast or its contents. Any commercial use, resale, or redistribution of this podcast without the FIA's express written consent is prohibited. Copyright 2022 FIA, all rights reserved. For more information, visit FIA.org.